And if you're visiting with us, I'm glad you're here. You're hearing about a wonderful Savior that has gripped our lives. He's changed our lives. Not in all the ways we wish we would be changed sometimes. We have to be patient because God is patient with us. But He is at work. The work He began, He promises to complete. So you be patient too, but you get busy. I've got to talk to you about this. You want to be faithful to Christ. Of course you do. If you're a Christian, you want to be faithful to Christ. But just because you want to be faithful to Christ doesn't mean you will be. You understand that? You have a part to play. You must remain faithful to Christ. You must make choices that reflect your desire to be faithful to Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. See, Paul is, is, is bringing this letter to a close. And he has some final admonishments for us. So let's look at those admonishments and let's dive in. These are all about remaining faithful to Christ. He says in verse chapter 16 of Corinthians, that's where we're at, we can see the finish line. It's coming. Not there yet. And he says in verse 13, and 14, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. God, we ask for you to make these words, let the impact they need to have on each one of us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, these exhortations of Christ, of Paul, excuse me, in verses 13 and 14, would fit in almost any one of Paul's letters. But at the same time, they also reflect the very issues that Paul has been raising with the Corinthians in this letter. So, what they tell us. He says, we are, we are not that different, ultimately, is what we're seeing here. We here are not that different. The same admonishments that he's going to give to these first century believers in Jesus are the same admonishments we need in 21st century followers Each of us need to be paying attention. I know I do. Each should stop thinking right now about what the other needs to be doing and how they need to change and ask God to show you how this sermon applies to you. So Paul here, he rather abruptly, he confronts us here with, a, with this series of five imperatives. It's like he, he can't quite sign off this letter here without urgently exhorting them one last time. And so I think in these admonitions in verses 13 and 14, I think they amount to Paul's summary appeal to remain faithful to Christ. That's the title of this message, Remaining Faithful to Christ. He lays out two main ways here in these 
five admonitions, two main ways by which they will remain faithful to Christ. First, it's by adhering to the gospel. The gospel they had received from him. They need to adhere to it. And then secondly, it's by loving one another. So when you think about this passage and you think about the need, uh, the need to remain faithful to Christ, remember this. Remain faithful to Christ by adhering to the gospel and loving one another. That's the broad picture of what these five admonitions lead us to. Remain faithful to Christ by adhering to the gospel and loving one another. So this morning we're going to be looking at what Paul says that is going to help you and me to adhere to the gospel that Paul preached to the Corinthians and then to us through this letter to the Corinthians. Now why do you need here to Paul's gospel because it's Christ's gospel because there is no other gospel and at the center of that gospel is the stark reality that Jesus Christ took on the debt of your sin he bore the full penalty of it in his death And then God raised him from the dead to show that the work of salvation for sinners was complete. It's done. It's finished. God is not your glorified life coach. Your sin is ugly and offensive to God. So much so that it required the bloody death of God's Son to satisfy His wrath against your sin. See, Maybe that's a stark contrast to the God you've been thinking is up in the sky. God of love. He is a God of love. He sent His Son to take your place. He's a God of justice, though. Sin will not get a pass. And it's the bloody death of His Son that shows both the love of God and the justice of God. Jesus substituted Himself for you in obedience to God and love for you so that you could escape the judgment that you deserve for your sin. And this is the only gospel. And therefore, it's what we hold to. It's what we proclaim. And in verse 13, Paul is urging us to be loyal, to adhere to this gospel. How? By being on your guard. By standing firm in the faith. And by being courageous and strong. So he's rallying the Corinthians. He's rallying us to a watchfulness and steadfastness of truth. You have the courage and the strength that you need to be a witness for Christ amidst a wicked and evil world. Paul us to remain faithful to Christ here. And while these admonitions are gripping enough, state, we're going to take some time to dive deeper into each one so that the Spirit can do some internal inspections in our heart in, in the areas that He knows we need. So first, Paul calls you to be on your guard. Be on the alert, he says in verse 13. So Paul's not talking here about don't fall asleep. Come on, don't fall asleep. 
He's talking about the opposite, a determined effort at wakefulness. It's not just don't fall asleep. It's be awake. Be on the alert. Be ready. Open your eyes. And with this command, Paul is calling us to recognize and to resist the tendency that we all have to drift spiritually. And as a result, subject ourselves to that which will harm us and lead us to regret. You don't like harm. Harm by its very nature is something you're like, I don't want that. Anybody here enjoy regret? Of course not. And wake up. Be on the alert. Because the opposite will lead to that. That's what he's saying. To be on your guard is to rouse yourself from a state of sluggish passivity to that of being on the alert so that you might not, might not be overtaken by something disastrous or dangerous or destructive to your soul. So trouble comes when you are not on your guard. Are you on your guard? So Jesus called for his disciples to be on the, the alert for his second coming. He said in Matthew 24 that if the head of the house had known what was going to break in, well, he'd be on the alert, right? That makes sense. Peter used it of the devil. He said in 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's happening. Are you aware of that? Are you alert to all his efforts to devour you? One sign of spiritual sluggishness, there's many. What I'm going to focus on this morning is on insensitivity to sin. Paul saw this in the Corinthians in their tolerance of a man in the church who was involved in an immoral relationship. Right? We, we went through this letter. We're on the last chapter. So I'm looking back over what we've covered. And he saw their insensitivity to sin and their tolerance. Who was living in open... Now, technically immoral means very little in our world today. To move in with your girlfriend or your boyfriend barely even raises an eyebrow. Many even consider it, that's a wise step. That's a good move, right? Like trying on a shoe first. Make sure it fits. Walk around in a little bit. So the world thinks nothing of this. But as Christians, we know that to live together as if you were married, as this in the amongst the Corinthians apparently was. That is what the Bible calls immorality. An immoral relationship is destructive. It goes against God's plan of one man covenanting together in marriage for life. And God created marriage for companionship, yes, but He actually has a far greater purpose in mind in the creation of marriage. Embedded within marriage is the gospel picture 
of Christ's love for his church, the church's submission to Christ. He tells us that in Ephesians 5. And this is why God hates divorce. It warps the gospel testimony in marriage. And so God hates immorality for the same reason. It removes sexual relations from the God-ordained boundaries of a marriage relationship and all its purposes in there, which are also, by the way, Christ-centered and gospel-oriented. But God has designed... Do you ever think about it? God designed sexuality. He knows all about it because He created it. So He's not a prude. He's not trying to keep you from the fun. He's offering to you that which will be most joyful and fulfilling and satisfying. He's offering it to you in the confines and the boundaries to keep it that way and not let it become something that you regret and lies about Him. Right? Because He's preaching through your marriage. He's preaching, Christian, through your life. And so this sexuality is a gift to be enjoyed, but enjoyed according to the parameters that God set. And that is in marriage. And therefore, any expression of sexuality outside of marriage an abuse of this gift of God, the Bible calls it sin. The world says it's not wrong. It says the times have changed and, and the church needs to catch up with the times. We are God's people. We don't take our cues from the culture. Sex outside of marriage is not acceptable to God, and Christians know this. Now, as you may recall, this was not the average case of immorality. I'm talking about what happened in chapter 5 of Corinthians, and if you want to flip back there and read with me Paul's description in the first verse of chapter 5, going to go to the handheld mic because of technical troubles we are working on. He says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1, he says, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. So this man in the church was in a relationship, an immoral relationship. This man was not his wife. Whose wife was she? His wife's. Now, he's not talking about his mother. So this is not an incestuous relationship, but it is immoral. It's his stepmother. So this man's immorality, as Paul says here, it even outdoes the godless sexualized culture of Corinth. That's how bad this is. And you know it's bad when even the non-Christians are saying, like, whoa, that's messed up. And the church had become so desensitized to sin that instead of mourning over it, removing the man from the church, Paul says they became arrogant. They were boasting about their tolerance of this sin. So they had minimized the, the sin and they had thought nothing of it and such an intolerant attitude towards sin, that's how you know that you're not alert. Because that's going to destroy you, and it's going to destroy the church. 
And that's what Paul tells them in verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? See, tolerance of unrepentant sin will permeate a church like yeast in dough. So you know that you're spiritually dull. And you're not alert to danger when you have become calloused towards sin that was once unthinkable to you. You're not bothered by it anymore. You're not watching yourself. Look at what you're doing. Look at how far you have drifted in your allegiance to Christ. How how can you not have noticed this? See, you seem to know what is wrong with everybody else. But you can't turn that on yourself and see what is wrong in your walk with God. So you've become desensitized to sin and harm and regret is not far away. You cannot remain faithful to Christ and adhere to the gospel if you are not alert against sin. So the reason that we still sin as Christians is because we still have a sin nature. Right? This sin nature once dominated our life. It was like a master-slave relationship, and we were bound in our chains to our sin. But when Christ saved us, we did not lose our sin nature. Our sin nature is the internal source of our temptations that tempt us to rebel against God. And so even as Christians, we cannot escape the pull of sin. We are free in Christ. Right? We are free indeed. Sin is no longer the master that you have to obey any longer. You are free to choose what you will do. Continue acting like a slave or using your freedom to serve and to honor Christ. See, you you will still encounter temptation as you did before. Only now you have Christ to help you, and that makes all the difference. You have divine help now from the Holy Spirit. He's with us. He supplies us the power to overcome the pull of the sin nature within us, right? That's, That's how it works. It's the outward temptation connects with the inward desire, and suddenly you're like, why am I thinking about doing this? Why am I contemplating doing something that I know is wrong, that I know if I do, I will regret? Why am I even thinking about this? Let me turn in the Bible and chant the magic incantation that's going to deliver me from this sin. I'm sorry, it's not there. I'm with you. I wish it was. Give me the spell that removes the power of temptation in my life. I'll say it. It's not there, Christian. If you're going to remain faithful to Christ, then you must remain faithful to Christ. Okay, we're going to talk about what that is. But I just want you to understand. This doesn't happen without you choosing to remain faithful to Christ. You have been set free. You do have a choice in the matter, even though sometimes it feels like you don't. 
You do. But you've got to remain faithful to Christ in a step-by-step way. You've got to do it every day. And as tiring and exhausting as that gets, you are in battle every day. You can't escape it. You have a sinful nature. And your heart is deceitful. He says, if you walk by His Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And we say amen to that, and we say, please help me to do that. And I am right there with you. And we've talked a lot about what that is. That's a statement that has a deep well to it. And we're going to talk about some of that that amounts essentially to walking by the Spirit so that you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. Now, even though we can still choose to sin, most Christians don't wake up and say, you know, hey, I think I'll use my freedom in Christ today to pursue sin. We don't wake up saying that. Our sinful natures know, really, not to be so obvious. Deception is key. The Bible in Jeremiah 17.9 warns us about our hearts. It informs us that the heart is more deceitful than all else. And this is why you must always be on your guard. Your heart, listen to this. Let this sink in. Your heart is willing to deceive you into choosing sin. So that means that your heart knows that it's not going to likely succeed in tempting you towards some big sin. And so, instead, it begins with small compromises. It won't be anything big. Just some mild indiscretion. It's no big deal. You're fine. No harm done. You read your Bible today. You're cool. Right? But once you cross that first line... It's all that much easier to cross the next one and the next one and the one after that. And it leads you eventually to that same bigger sin that you would have ran away from if your heart had presented it to you right up front. See, when you're not on your guard against all compromise, you're eventually going to find yourself someplace that you never thought you'd be like justifying immorality with your stepmother. So what can you do to help you be on your guard against sinful compromise that's going to subtly lead you away from faithfulness to Christ? How can you win the daily battle against temptation and sin? Well, first of all, buckle up for the long haul. One victory over a battle doesn't mean the next battle will also be victorious. You understand that? Every battle can be won or lost. Every battle with sin. Your posture is sword in hand, sword in hand, seeking to kill every time sin in some manner, compromise in some manner, raises its head against the knowledge of Christ. That's what you take captive. You let it pass, ah, you're all right, go ahead. Laughing at you as it walks by. Calling out to the next compromise. He's ready, let's go. That's the way this works. Or you kill one sin, you're successful. 
killed that sin, and then the next one walks by you while you're gloating over the death of that sin, and the other sin gets right by you because you're not alert. You think the battle is won because you defeated it once. We need to wake up. This is ongoing. You're where you need to be this morning to be encouraged to keep going. Fellowship throughout the week, reading of the Word, this is how you keep going because the battles won't stop until Christ returns. So what can you do to help yourself be on your guard against these compromises? How can you win these daily battles? Any winning winning strategy has both an offense and a defense connected with it. So here's your defensive strategy is what we're going to talk about first. Beware of habits that weaken your faith. Beware of habits that weaken your faith. The other habit, the offensive, or sorry, the other strategy, the offensive one, is live in light of Christ's return. So, beware of habits that weaken your faith and live in light of Christ's return. It is not one or the other. It is both. We're talking about a daily resolve to put off sin, put on Christ. And this is how you're going to remain faithful to Christ and adhere to his gospel. So let's first look at your defensive strategy. Being on your guard, it means to, first of all, beware of habits that weaken your faith. Beware of habits that weaken your faith. Paul instructed Timothy... In 1 Timothy 1.18, he says, Fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, so that, he was telling him, so that you will not shipwreck your faith. So faith and behavior, it goes together. Belief drives behavior. And so fighting the good fight against evil, it is a spiritual battle. It involves keeping your faith in God and His Word strong and living a life that is pleasing to God. And so when your faith is weakened, you become vulnerable to sin. I read an article on this subject that I thought was beneficial, and I want to give a number of habits that this article mentioned that weakens faith. Let me give you six habits that, that you need to be on guard against. These are the things you need to be watching for, to be on the alert against. The first faith-weakening habit is loving the world. Loving the world. Scripture warns us in 1 John 2.15. He says, it says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So Satan... Scripture says is the God of this world. His value system is contrary to God's. And the next verse, 1 John 2, 16, tells us what value Satan seeks to promote in our world that we live in, that we are, we are in, but not to be of. He says the lust of the, of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Every sin imaginable falls into one of these three categories. So loving the world 
means prizing the world's treasures, believing the world's philosophies, adopting the world's priorities. And each of these things can capture your heart if you're not directing your heart heavenward. And if the world captures your heart, then it will weaken your faith and it will eventually destroy it. So are there ways that the world is influencing you? Capturing your affections. Be honest. Be careful of the shows you watch. Be careful of what entertains you. Be careful of the people you follow on social media. What do we call those people that we follow? The big ones. Influencers. Duh. They want to influence you. They're just kind of putting it right out there. The books, the articles you read, and so forth. See, the world is not neutral. All that is in the world is not from the Father. It's from the world. And also from the God of this world, who is Satan, liar, and a murderer from the beginning. So beware of habits that are leading you to love the world and weaken your faith in God and His Word. Next is neglecting the Word. One of the surest ways to become attracted to the world and to pursue the temporary rather than the eternal is to neglect reading and studying and dwelling on God's Word. So if you aren't constantly pouring God's Word and principles into your heart and mind then you're going to be influenced by the perceptions and the priorities of the world. Remember Jesus' warning about the influence of the, word, of the world on the word that you hear. Right? He said the worry of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, what does it do? It chokes the word so that it becomes unfruitful in you. See, if you don't have the habit of reading and studying God's word, your faith is vulnerable to being choked out by the lies and the deceptions of the world. So reading and understanding Scripture, that's what the Spirit uses to strengthen your faith in God, even the God that you sometimes struggle to understand. You don't have to understand all that God is doing to trust Him, do you? You can look at His character. You can see the God that He is. And so when you don't know what he's doing, his response to you is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Another practice to beware of is trusting your feelings. Trusting your feelings. See, God has given us his spirit to guide us, to convict us of sin, but it's foolish to put your feelings over what God tells you in his word. Remember what Jeremiah tells us about our heart, right? More deceitful than all else. And so your heart can mislead you by making you think that God has abandoned you when his word tells you that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Your feelings might tell you God's done with you, but his word says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So don't base your faith on your feelings. Base your faith on the facts of who God has revealed himself to be, and what he tells you in his word. Your feelings are going to fluctuate, but God never does. He's always good. He's always loving. 
He's always gracious. He's always wise. And he's always in control. The fourth practice that will weaken your faith is worrying. We're all prone to worry. I worry. It's so easy to do. But it is dangerous. It's something that that also insults God. When we worry, we are saying to ourselves, we're saying to others, I cannot trust God to handle this, and so I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to stress now. See, Jesus told his disciples in Luke twelve, he told them five times not to worry, because God will take care of you. God will take care of you. God will take care of you. In Philippians four six, he says, Don't worry. Pick what you're going to worry about. That's not what it says, is it? That's how we treat it. I can put this one off. But that one, that one requires me to worry. No, he says, don't worry about anything. He says, instead, pray about everything. Turn your worries into prayers. That's really the best advice I can give you. Your worrying should be the red flag saying, it's time to start praying. (laughs) That's why we pray unceasingly. We're always worried about something. See, faith is like a muscle. It needs to be exercised or it's going to atrophy. And so exercise your faith. How? By choosing not to give in to the worry, but instead to trust your Heavenly Father that He really is in control. Trust His timing. Trust His wisdom. Trust His goodness. Trust that the times that He says to wait or the times that He says no, that therefore you're good. Trust Him. Stop worrying. I'm not trying to minimize that it's that simple. But if you're going to let it go on, your faith is going to diminish and you're going to be more prone to sin. Another practice that is sure to weaken your faith, make you vulnerable to sin, is hanging with the wrong crowd. Hanging with the wrong crowd. And this is, I would say, especially true in the years of our youth. Psalm 1 makes it clear that God's blessing is on the man or the woman who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And sadly, this is what oftentimes, let's be honest, This is what makes it fun to hang out with the wrong crowd. Right? They they usually make you laugh, right? They they make you feel good. The problem is though, it's usually over things that you know you shouldn't be laughing at or finding pleasure in. And being with them means it means you're popular, it means you're accepted, it means you're cool. But be honest. It comes at a cost spiritually, doesn't it? The gossip, complaining, the criticizing, the crude jokes, the vulgar language. None of that builds you up in Christ. None. Instead, it brings you down spiritually. It, It whittles away at your faith. And Solomon's advice for you, 
Will you hear it? Solomon's advice for you is found in Proverbs 12, 26. It says it this way in the NIV. It says, the righteous choose their friends carefully. Sounds like something your grandpa would say, right? That's because he's learned a few lessons in his life. And if you're smart, if you're wise, you'll take this consideration very carefully and evaluate things. The righteous choose their friends carefully. See, those who are in your close circle of friends, the people you spend the most time with, they are the people who are going to have the biggest influence on you because you like them. You care about their opinion. And this includes, let me add, your closest relationships. Boyfriends. Girlfriends. And I'm not saying anything you don't already know. Have you realized that following Christ, it isn't always black and white? If it were, decisions decisions in your life would be so much easier, right? You're either going to obey or you're going to disobey. One of the two. But see, God, in his wisdom, he has purposefully allowed many situations in our life that he has not specifically defined as sin. In other words, there are not some specific verses that say a certain something is sinful. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have anything to say about it. Circumstances and situations in our life that require us to be wise, these, friends, are divine opportunities for spiritual growth. This is where the growth really happens. When it's not cut and dry. When it really boils down to how you feel about your Lord. These are divine opportunities. Where wisdom is required, they're divine opportunities for spiritual growth. But friends, they're also divine opportunities in which you can find great spiritual harm. And this is certainly true for those close relationships in your life. There is no verse that says having non-Christians as your close friends is sin. Nor is there a verse that says dating a non-Christian is sin. The question that you need to be asking yourself, Christian, is, is, is it wise? Is this a good idea, spiritually speaking? Because God has not been silent on this. What effect are these close influential personal relationships having on your walk with God? Are they are they building you up in love for Christ? Are they encouraging obedience to Christ? Are they motivating you to make disciples for Christ? Now be honest. It's not a time to play games. Why would close, influential relationships with unbelievers ever lead you towards Christ? Why would they? These are not their priorities. I'm not blaming them. They're not Christians, and they're going to act like they're not Christians. 
Don't be surprised. Now, they might not be actively trying to lead you away from Christ. I hope they're not. But remember, your heart is looking for ways to blind you to the priorities that you should have as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So small compromises, they're leading you somewhere. They're leading you to bigger ones. With all manner of spiritual harm and regret. And so sure, you can, you can stand on the ground that your relationship with your non-believing friends or girlfriend or boyfriend is, is technically not sin. But are you being wise or foolish in this stance? God is not silent. Just a few verses back, in fact, in chapter 15, verse 33. He even puts it in the same manner. He says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, not all bad company, or not all unbelievers, I should say, we would call bad company. Right? They're not actively trying to convince you to sin. Not all unbelievers are like this. Of course not. But there is an underlying spiritual principle, and it would be highly unwise for you as a Christian to ignore this. What's the principle? Light and darkness do not mix. Light and darkness do not mix. Paul says in Ephesians 5.8, For you, he's talking to the church, were formerly darkness. That is what you were. That is what unbelievers are. But now, he says, you are light in the Lord. And that is what God says you are in Christ now. And because God has brought you out of darkness and made you light in the Lord, he says you are to walk as children of light. And so if you're going to have any kind of close friendships, especially romantic ones that entwine the affections of the heart, if you're going to choose to go that route with an unbeliever, God may not be calling it sin. But can you say that you're really heeding the wise advice that God has given to you in his word? Or is it more so that you're telling God, as, as well as those around you who love you and might be concerned about these very relationships in your life, are you telling him and God, I'm fine. I'm fine. I got this. Right? It's no big deal. You're making a big deal out of nothing. Ask yourself this question. Who is really influencing you? Here's how you'll know if you're truly serious about this. Okay, it's not just ask yourself the question because you're probably going to answer it in light of the answer you really want it to be. Here's how you know if you're really serious about this question. You ask your parents, your spouse a godly brother and sister in the Lord that you trust. Whoever that Christian is in your life that you know knows you and cares about you, you ask them what they think. Who's influencing me most? The problem is, is that you may already know the answer because they've been talking to you, trying to get you to see things as you need to see them. And so if you want your faith to be strengthened, be wise. 
surround yourself as best you can with those who sharpen your faith, challenge you to grow spiritually. That's what our relationships are to be, like iron sharpening iron. Don't assume that just because someone says they're a Christian, this is important too, that they are by default godly influences in your life. I hang out with other Christians. What do you want from me? I've seen what these other Christians do. I've seen what these other Christians talk about. I see what they revel in. And I honestly don't see much difference between them and the world. So again, don't play games with God on this. Look at their choices. Look at their spiritual priorities. And if your closest friends are Christians who just aren't serious about following Christ, you won't be either. Choosing your close friends carefully is an important way that you protect your faith in God. One last way to weaken your faith is relying on self. Self-reliance is something that the world praises. But Jesus never did. Jesus stresses God-reliance. See, on the one hand, we are to do all that we do as unto the Lord. And that means that we're to strive to do our best. We must learn in our striving to leave the results to God. Right? We, we do our best. We trust in His best for us through it all. Right? So this one can really stretch and strengthen your faith. Right? As you entrust yourself and your future to God. And when you're applying for that job that you want, you, you lay that matter out before God in prayer. And then you do your best in the interview or in whatever procedure it involves. And then you relieve the results to God. You don't put your hope in your ability to wow the people or or to make good impressions. You put your hope in God. He's the one who opens doors and no one can close. He's the one who closes doors and no one can open. That's his job. And that's who you put your trust in. That's who you leave it with. You know, the job... And its description, that may seem ideal to you. Oh, this job was made for me. But remember how wise and how loving your God is and choose to believe that God knows how best to direct your steps. Relying on self is a sure way to keep your faith weak. See, these are all different habits to be on your guard against. There's others we could list, I'm sure. If you realize you struggle with with some or even all of these, First of all, I assure you, you are not alone. These are the most common ones that I thought are likely to connect with all of us here. You may not have been aware of just how corrosive these habits have been to your faith and your walk with God. And the good news is that you are free in Christ, as I mentioned. Which means that you can develop habits that will build your faith strengthen your resolve to to trust the Lord, to obey Him in any of these areas. So here's what you need to do. If you've identified some of things you're struggling with that you know are weakening your faith, and you start by confessing it to God. You be honest. You call it what it is. God already knows. You're not informing Him. Tell Him of your desire to repent. And then consider enlisting the help of your discipler of another brother or sister that you trust. 
Ask them to help you make a plan to put these faith-weakening habits off and with God's help to replace them with godly habits that will strengthen your faith. I'm going to I'm going to go ahead with this last point. It, it might bring us right up to the edge here of our time, but I think it's important. I don't want to put this off till next week. So being aware of those habits that will weaken your faith is just one part of you being on your guard. It's your defensive strategy. So let's talk briefly about your offensive strategy. The other way that you be uh, you are to be on your guard is to live in light of Christ's return. Paul Paul calls here he calls us here he says be on the alert. It's it's, it's much easier a call to watchfulness. It, it's to be seen as a call to watchfulness in light of the Lord's return. Martin Luther said this. He said, there's two days on my calendar. This day and that day. In other words, there is how you are living to choose, how you are living your life, choosing to live it right now. And there is how you will be living on that day when Christ fulfills his promise to return soon. See, Christians are a second coming people. And Christians all hold to differing positions on the millennium and on the tribulation. And we're not going to know who's really right until it happens. One thing that all Christians are to be unified on is the literal soon coming return of Christ. And so the question is not if Jesus will return. The question is when and what difference should it make in my life on this day. So Jesus' second coming is not some abstract doctrine that has no bearing on our daily life. Rather, all throughout the New Testament, it's referred to as something that should shape your daily life. And so I urge you not to minimize how essential your alertness to Christ's return is in your life as a Christian. The Bible refers over and over to Jesus' second coming. And the passages, they are all oriented towards his return, shaping your daily living. You're to be like a bride who's looking, knowing that the bridegroom will show up at any time. You're to be like uh, the head of a home who's anticipating the thief to come and break into his house. And so he's on the alert. See, what Jesus says will happen and when it will happen are not unimportant considerations. They are actually of the utmost urgency. And so you can't really be on your guard without living in light of Christ's return. So how are we to do this? Turn to Titus chapter 2. Let's look at this as we close out. Titus chapter 2. Let's read verses 11. To 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That's Jesus. He's the grace of God who appeared. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous 
for good deeds. So really quickly, what are some principles we can draw out of this? First of all, we are to abound in the Lord's work. This is how we live in light of Christ's return. We abound in the Lord's work. Paul already told us this in verse 58 of chapter 15, right before, right? Therefore, always abound in the work of the Lord, because your toil's not in vain, because Jesus is coming. Paul, uh, this is how you live sensibly in this godless age. You focus on what you need to be doing, which is, which is abounding in the Lord's work. You be zealous for good deeds. Let there be a zealousness in your service of God. Secondly, we're to prioritize church and fellowship. He says, Christians, he says, excuse me, he says, Christ here has instructed, what does he say, you? No, he says, us. Us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And what have I been doing almost since I stepped into the pulpit this morning? I've been admonishing us about our ungodly desires. See, this is how Christ strengthens you through so you making a priority when the saints are gathering for fellowship so that you can be reminded. Because the world is working 24-7 against you. You need to be reminded of the mission that you have. You can't do this on your own. You need the church and you need the fellowship that it provides you. Thirdly, cultivate a longing for heaven. He says that we are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing Christ. So 21st century Christians, you know, we most of us find our, that we're enjoying comforts of all kinds. But the problem is that we're becoming spiritually dull in the process. And this is not good. And we need to yearn for something so beautiful and eternally satisfying that will eclipse, transcend all other longings and expectations. You need to be cultivating a greater desire than your desire for the things of this world. That's all I can say at this point in time. That's a whole sermon in and of itself. Lastly, you need to purify, uh, second to last, purify your life. Christ has purified us to be his people. Right? He's wiped away the consequences of our sin. We're to live in light of that. Are we to continue to sin? The grace might increase. May it never be. He hasn't wiped away our sins and promised us the forgiveness of Christ so that we can go out and sin more. You are to live in light of his return. You need to tell yourself he could return at any moment because that's what he tells us. And if you will do this, it will have a sanctifying effect upon your life. And this is why one preacher famously said that we should live as though Christ died yesterday, rose from the grave today, and is coming tomorrow. Live like that. And you'll be good. Lastly, you need to renew your witness for Christ. And let me just close with 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow about his promise. You know, you've been saying Christ has been returning for the last 2,000 years. That doesn't sound too soon. When you're eternal, when you're eternal, this is soon. When you're finite like us, this seems like a long time. He is not slow about his promise. He is patient. That is what He is. Oh, He's working in you. And He wants to continue to work through you. And He's patient. You stumble and fall. You get disappointed with with how your walk is with Christ. 
You get shocked by some sin that you've welcomed in again and again and again and again and again. God does not throw up his hands. He's not done with you. He promised you. He's not done with you. He's patient with you. He's a gracious and loving God. He's a father. He's for you. You're his. You belong to him. He does not desire for you to perish. He doesn't desire for any to perish. He wants you to come to repentance when you've sinned. So stop wallowing. Get up. Dust yourself off. Come to the throne of grace in which God says he is just to forgive and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And then get back into the race and renew your witness for Christ. Don't let your sin sideline you. This is the gospel we're talking about. This is, this is how the gospel permeates your daily life. The gospel says that, yes, you can sin. And, yes, you're going to regret it. But the gospel also says that you're forgiven and you can get back up. You can confess it to God. You don't have to go into penance for a certain amount of time before you can talk about Jesus again. You can walk with him again. You can live for him again. You can renew your witness. So friends, we're not done with this passage. Five admonitions and and we labored through one of them. Wasn't expecting this. This often happens. You just get blown away by what God wants to say through his word. And I've confronted you, I hope it's, and me. God forbid me from making it sound like I don't need these same confrontations. Don't ever think that. I just have to say them. And I want to speak them to you. I don't say we or us a lot. I say you. Because you have to receive this too. I've been laboring with this all week. Now I'm speaking to you. So may you receive it. And may this lead to changes that need to happen. God, we ask that you would be at work through your word, confronting us and encouraging us. We love you not as we should, but we're amazed that you love us as you do. And we are so grateful. And so we... We pause and we stop and we think, oh God, I need to repent of this. You've known it all along and so have I. I've just been holding back. Help me to repent of this. Even if it's again for the 21st time. Or the 51st time. Or the 101st time. Or the 1,000th time. So great is your patience towards us. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.